in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, Matthew tells a story of four individuals who bring their friend to Jesus. He was a paralytic. They brought him to Jesus. They lay him there before Jesus. And Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Well, that raises a lot of eyebrows. Looking at Jesus with suspicion. And Jesus responds by saying, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say get up take up your mat and walk home and Jesus says in Matthew 9 so that you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins get up pick up your bed and go home. And that man got up, completely healed, gathered up his stuff, and walked home with all his sins forgiven. New life in Christ. Matthew tells that story, and it should raise a few questions in our mind. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, what sins can Jesus forgive? If Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, whose sins will he forgive? More importantly, will Jesus forgive my sins? Matthew then immediately begins to tell his story of new life in Christ to answer those very questions. When Jesus was born, Rome had already been dominating Israel for about 60 years. And one of the aspects of the Roman domination of Israel that was most hated in Israel was the system of taxation, incredibly oppressive. Because of that oppression, tax collectors were seen as some of the lowest ranking individuals in society. They were seen as traitors and extortionists. Well, Matthew was a tax collector, and his friends and acquaintances, the groups that he hung with and ran with, were tax collectors, outcasts, reprobates, prostitutes, former criminals, Gentiles, everyone that generally in that society would be classified as an outcast, someone who really wasn't wanted. That was Matthew. Well, Matthew woke up on a day that's probably like any other day, and he headed to his tax booth to collect taxes from angry and hateful people. And I'm certain, much to Matthew's surprise, while he's 
standing there in his tax booth, Jesus Christ walks straight up to Matthew and does not waste any time with explanations, simply says to Matthew, follow me. We're not told what Matthew thinks in that moment, but I've got to wonder if Matthew wasn't in that moment thinking, is he talking to me? Can this be real? Does Jesus really want me to follow him? Well, Matthew wasted no time himself in doing anything to tidy things up. He immediately left his tax booth and he followed Jesus Christ. You know what Matthew did? He threw a big party with all his friends, all the other tax collectors and sinners and outcasts that he hung around. He gathered them all at his house because he wanted all of them to see the unbelievable, that Jesus Christ, the forgiver of sins, really called Matthew, the tax collector, the sinner, to follow him. He had all those people come together and they celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ cared about Matthew. Matthew tells his story of new life in Christ because Matthew wanted everyone to know if Jesus can forgive me, He can forgive anyone. The religious leaders didn't like that Jesus was hanging out with the sinful people. I mean, these were the kind of people that were so outcast that nobody would want to be around them unless you were one of them. And you certainly won't want your kids hanging around them. These were the wrong kind of people. And the religious leaders were really critical of Jesus for hanging around the wrong kind of people, sinners. Jesus, knowing their criticism, he says to them, it's not the healthy the need a physician, but it's those who are sick. You need to go and you need to figure out what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. I did not come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. I want to tell you a little bit about my new life in Christ story, about when I began to learn more and more about what Jesus meant when he said, I desire mercy. My story begins with an 18-year-old, unwed, pregnant young lady. She was a churchgoer. She sang in the choir. She became pregnant, and she walked through the challenges of being unwed and pregnant, struggling with one of the more difficult decisions of her life. She made the decision along the way of that pregnancy that the best decision she could make would be adoption. 
And on the day that she gave birth to a baby boy, she held him in her arms, saying hello and goodbye. And she gave me up for adoption. I'm sure it was one of the more difficult decisions of her life. I found out later that the reason that she felt like she could make that decision is because she felt like she could entrust her, baby's boy, her baby boy's life to the Lord. And her decision was not just for adoption, but was a decision of, I'm giving up this baby to the Lord. And I'll trust him with his life. I didn't have to wait long to meet my new parents. I was about 10 days old when I was introduced to my mom and dad who picked me up at a children's home. For them, it represented years of prayer because they had not been able to have children. My mom had come to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior just a few years before. My dad, when my mom met Christ as her Lord and Savior, who was already a Christian, found that my mom's decision really encouraged him to begin walking closely with the Lord. And so they had been walking with the Lord, and because they had not been able to have children, had been crying out to the Lord to give them a child. And God placed me in that home. My mom and dad, they had every ambition of giving me the home that they believed God wanted me to have. There's a saying that I used to communicate to my kids when they were little. I started saying this with my oldest just when he was tiny. And I would hold him in my arms and I would say to him, Weston, I want you to know if I could line up all the little boys in the world and I could only pick one to be my little boy, I'd pick you. And I modified that along the way as I had other kids, uh, but that was the saying that I would say to all my kids. And I'll never forget when Weston was just three years old, unprovoked, he looked up at me and he said, Daddy, if I could line up all the daddies in the world and could just pick one, I'd pick you. I need you to hear, like this, I need you to hear this from me. If I could line up all the moms and dads in the world, I'd still pick my mom and dad. And I don't want you to miss that. Like, I need you to get that before I share the rest of my story. My mom and dad had every intention of raising me in a home where I would know and fear the Lord. And for the early years of my life, we frequented church Sunday morning and Sunday night. My mom and dad were involved in leadership of the church. I remember being in church a lot as a little kid, and I remember hearing about the Lord from my mom and dad. And through the influence of my mom and dad and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, just before I was seven years old, I decided to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I'm grateful that my mom and dad introduced me to Jesus Christ. But those very early years of a family that cared about following the Lord, 
The memories of those times are really vague compared to what really dominated my heart and mind for years to come. There was secret brokenness that came into my life before I was nine years old. From the outside looking in, everybody would have said everything was normal in this family's life and in this boy's life. But I had experienced something that no one else, virtually no one else in my life knew. I experienced sexual abuse by a neighbor. And I kept that secret, thinking that I could manage, confusing, hurtful, shameful. But I discovered that that secret would keep me. When I was nine years old, my family, we moved back home to Texas. And I felt like maybe moving to a new state would give me a new life. But I found that moving to a new state doesn't give new life. Two years after moving back to Texas, my mom and dad called my little sister Just a little over two years after my mom and dad adopted me, my mom discovered she was pregnant. And uh, I had a little sister. And when I was 11 and my little sister was eight, my mom and dad called us into the kitchen for a family meeting. And I'll never forget the horror of that moment hearing my mom and my dad tell me that, and my little sister that they believed that The best decision for our family was for them to become separated. And I was so sad and angry. I remember thinking to myself, you adopted me. And now you're giving up on our home. Mom and dad decided that my sister and me would live with my mom. It didn't take my mom long to decide that she did not want to be married to my dad anymore. She had been having an affair. She communicated that the marriage was irreconcilable and she divorced my dad. Both my parents stopped going to church. It was so devastating for my father that it would take him years to recover spiritually. My mom went the opposite direction of Christianity in every way, shape, and form. She met a man at a local bar, and after only knowing him for a matter of weeks, she decided that she wanted to marry him. This was the second man that had been in our home since my mom and dad had divorced. The first one She didn't marry. This one she did marry, and it took us all of a couple months to discover that he was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a physical abuser. And my home spun into chaos. 
My dad was largely uninvolved in my life. And my mom continued to pursue every form of brokenness and sinfulness in the context of the chaos of a marriage that would end and start and end and start again and again and again. We walked through probably five actual divorces and remarriages to that one man along with countless other separations because of the craziness of a physically violent home. Altogether, I saw three stepfathers, probably over eight divorces and remarriages. All the chaos that goes with alcoholism, drug addiction, and physical violence. My sister and me lived in fear, in embarrassment, in brokenness and darkness for years. I wanted to know the life that God had promised in the Bible. I wanted that. I kept going to church. I would ask for rides from people at church. I wanted to find life in Christ. But what I was finding along the way in my home was anger and bitterness. I was so angry. I hated my circumstances. I hated the choices my parents had made. I hated the men that had come into my life that I felt like ruined my life. And I hated the secret shame that I continued to carry in my heart that did not find remedy in the midst of my anger and bitterness towards my parents. And so my own brokenness continued to mirror the life around me and although I wanted Christ and I sought after Christ and I felt like Christ was working in my life, I was stuck in my own anger and bitterness and could not find a remedy. When I was 17, I moved out of living with my mom and I ended up with a family in the church I was attending, they had come to me and said, if you ever need a place to go, we'll open our home to you. Can you believe that someone would do that for me? Do you know why I call our church a family? Because if it were not for someone in the church inviting me into their lives and making room for me, I would not have survived. But somebody graciously invited me in. And it was in the context of living in that home that I discovered the greatest life-changing truth of my life, that Jesus desires mercy. I realized while living in the home of this family from our church that My parents' sins 
and the sin done against me was not my greatest problem. I learned that my greatest problem was my choice of sin. I chose to be angry. I chose to be bitter. I chose to keep secret the shame that then became sin in my life. Like that secret shame of abuse tried to find its way to remedy in my life by me trying to figure out a way to convince myself that I wasn't permanently broken inside. That somehow a broken past did not mean I would have to have a broken future. And because I kept that in hiding, it became brokenness itself. All of that was happening inside of me and I discovered by the grace and mercy of God breaking through the hardness of my own heart that my greatest problem was not what others had done to me but what I had done myself in sinful anger and bitterness towards God. And what a wonderful moment that was because when I discovered that my greatest problem was my sin against God, I discovered that my greatest solution was the mercy of Jesus Christ. He would forgive me of all my sin. He would cleanse me of the things that were robbing me of life, and he would give remedy to my heart for what was devastating me on the inside. And so I cried out to the Lord and I confessed my sin to him and I admitted the brokenness of my own heart. And you know what happened? God began to work new life in me. It was remarkable. I discovered that my circumstances didn't have to improve one bit for me to have a new life. I have thought that what my mom had done had robbed my life. What I discovered was that God had been offering me life all along in the midst of the storm, and my anger kept me from experiencing it. But when I confessed my sin, I was forgiven. And the result of the forgiveness God poured out on me was the ability, the growing ability to love my mom if she never changed. To love those who abandoned me. To forgive those who had hurt me because I had been forgiven. I began to experience new life in Christ. But I still had a secret that I wasn't willing to tell anyone. I tried to compartmentalize it and believe that God would just make it okay. For me personally, that's not how it worked. The, the secret of that abuse still threatened my new life. 
So fast forward to my senior year in college. And I was at my apartment one day all by myself and my roommate's big brother stopped by our apartment. He would regularly stop by and encourage us and share scripture with us and mentor and disciple us in the faith. He was many years older than my roommate, and so he was definitely this father figure, this older brother figure, and he just blessed us all the time when he came by to encourage us. On this particular day, he found me in my apartment by myself, and he sat down with me and he said, I've been praying for you, and I wanted to come by to talk to you today because as I've been praying for you, God has led me to believe that I needed to come and ask you if you have a secret that you've been holding in your heart that is eroding your life away from the inside. I don't know how he knew except that Jesus desires mercy. And he just intervened in my life that day. And when he said, do you have a secret you've been harboring? I said, yes. And I shared with him what had happened those years before as a child. And I brought shame out into the light of God's mercy. And along with bringing that shame out into the light of God's mercy, I brought out into the light some of my choices of sin after that moment of shame. I needed somebody to help me experience the mercy of God in a very shameful part of my life. And God really helped me experience freedom from shame. Now, fast forward 25 years to today, and I want to tell you that I'm still in need of new life in Christ. Like the first 20 years of my life created a tremendous amount of baggage of bad habits and brokenness and terrible reactions to things around me, anger and bitterness. Those habits of the first 20 years of my life, they, they created a lot of issues. And so I've been in need of new life in Christ. And then the last 25 years, I've added a lot more of my own stuff, you know. And I am as in much need of new life in Christ as ever before, but I want to tell you, I'm experiencing new life in Christ. He's working in me. He's making me alive, and I love what God has done to rescue me. I'm so grateful, so thankful. I've shared before coming to First Georgetown the larger parts of my story before with people. But the secret shame part I've not shared before like this. And uh, after sharing that day as a senior in college, 
I began to over time convince myself that I didn't need to keep that in the open because I was terribly embarrassed. And so shame kind of got hold of me again. And over the last couple years, God has been working in my life and asking me to allow him to own every piece of my story of new life so that the story of redemption that he's worked in me might be seen in all its details. Though I've not shared with you all the details, I've shared with you the broad strokes of my story. And the reason that I have shared with you is because I felt like the Lord laid this on my heart six months ago. And I kept thinking about, well, what is the way to to share this kind of story with our church family? Well, how about if we do a series about new life in Christ? And God was working in our staff to do some things to bring this to fruition. And I believe this was the right time for me to share what God has been doing in my life. And I just want to tell you that everything that God has done in my life to redeem the brokenness of my past, I'm letting him own it from this day forward because I want even the most shameful shameful parts of my story to be stories of his glorious redemption so that others might find new life in Christ that may not otherwise find it And so, I've I've been pretty anxious about today, like really nervous, like upset stomach, kind of bad nervous about today, and it's really hard. But here's the thing, I believe that God is doing something, and that if I don't allow my whole story of redemption to be a part of our church family's story. Maybe I'll be the person that is preventing God from doing what he wants to do. And so I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to let God use me however he wants to use me and that you might be encouraged to trust Christ just the same way I'm striving to trust Christ. Because until we admit our brokenness and trust him with all of who we are, we will not have the new life in Christ that others need to see and experience. And so I just am hopeful that we will be a place where we can walk together in the light of God's mercy and experience new life in Christ. So much so that an onlooking world will see something in us that they simply can't resist. I told, I told uh, my youngest son for the first time last night what I would be sharing with you today. He just looked at me and said, Dad, thank you. I love you. And my hope is 
for him the same as my hope for you. That you would hear what I say. And you would think of what Jesus said. I desire mercy. And you'd believe that for you. You know know what happened when Matthew, in the very next chapter of his account, listed out the 12 disciples? You know what he did? This is remarkable. Matthew lists out the 12 names of the disciples in Matthew 10, and he starts out by saying, Simon is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. When Matthew listed out all the names of the disciples, when he got to his name, he wanted to make sure that all of us someday would read Matthew, the tax collector. As if to put one big exclamation point on the reality that if Jesus can forgive Matthew, he can forgive anyone of anything. New life in Christ for all of us always begins with admitting our brokenness, that we are powerless to manage our own lives, that we need the power of God to bring redemption and break the patterns of brokenness through trusting in Jesus Christ so that through new life in Christ, the world around us could see the glory of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new person. Behold, all things old are gone and all things are new. These things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Please do not miss new life in Christ.